Good morning, church. Hope you guys are enjoying this beautiful, wet, snowy Sunday morning. I'm so glad that you guys are here in person to join us and worship with us. If you're tuning in online, we're glad that you're worshiping with us also. Um, if this is your first time or if you've been coming for a little bit and you'd like to get plugged in even more so, I want to encourage you just to text the word welcome to the phone number that's on the screen back here and on the sides or on your computer screen. Um, just a great way for us to connect with you, say thank you for joining us, um, answer any questions you may have about MCC, um, and get you plugged in if you would like to join a life group or, or to serve or, or you just have any questions at all. Uh, we are in the middle of our sermon series called Broken Heroes as we walk through the book of Judges, and we've entitled it Broken Heroes because this is what we see from the judges. We see that they are broken men and women who God uses in powerful ways, and, and up to this point... We've seen, some, we've seen some God-fearing judges, but starting today, we start to see a shift in the judges that, that rules Israel during this time. Uh, last, two weeks ago, we, we started the, the story of Gideon, and we saw how Gideon was in a hole hiding. He was scared when an angel of the Lord came to him and called him a mighty man of valor. Not because that's what he was, as he was hiding in a hole scared, but because that's who God was making him into being. Last week, 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 we looked at how Gideon took 300 men up against the army of the Midianites, and, and there was great chaos that God caused within the Midianite camp, and, and Israel starts pursuing them. And in chapter 8, where we're picking up today, what we see is that Gideon and the Israelites are pursuing the leaders of Midian, and they come across two cities, Succoth and Penel, not Penel, but Penul, something along those lines, and the, they ask for help. They ask for help in pursuing the Midian leaders as they, as they continue this battle and war, and the leaders say, no, nah, we're, we're good. We'd help you out. We'd, we'd help your army out if you already had them, but, but we're not going to support you right now because you haven't actually won the victory. You haven't actually won the war yet. And so the, Gideon and his army continue, they, they pressure, and they, they finally do take the leaders of Midian, and they come back through, and Gideon now is a little bit more confident. Gideon's standing a little bit taller as a, a mighty man of valor, as the angel of the Lord told him he was going to make him into, that God was going to make him into. He's, he's a military leader now with a win, with a victory, with a little bit more confidence. And at this point, when he comes back through, he text says that he disciplines the leaders of Succoth and he kills the leaders of Penul. And at this point, we see a shift. At this point, we see a shift and Israel's problems are not so much the, the nations around them. It's not the oppressing nation, but Israel's problems start coming from within. This is the first time that we see Gideon not consulting with God, not asking God if he's with him, not asking for the will of God to be known in this situation. This is the first time we see Gideon acting on his own. And it's downhill from here. The, the leaders of Israel come to Gideon. They say, we want you to rule over us. We want you to be king. We want your son to be a king over us. We want your son's son to be a king over Israel. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't want that. But I will take your gold. I will take payment for what I have done, what God has called me to do for Israel. I'll, I'll take payment for this. And with this gold, in Judges chapter 8, it says, And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. 
Now, an, an ephod was a garb. It was a religious uh, garb that um, the Levites wore into the temple as they uh, went to worship and offer sacrifices. And it was, it was meant to be worn. But if you make an ephod out of gold, it's going to be way too heavy to wear. What happens here is that Gideon is making this ephod for himself because, well, he sees himself as priest-like from the tribe of Levi. He, he is seeing himself and elevating himself because of what God has done through him. And they start worshiping it. The, the instrument, the, the garment that was meant to be used in worship to God has now become the object of worship. And we see this happening even in our culture today. Well, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. The next judge to rule after the death of Gideon was his son, Abimelech. And Abimelech had a group of friends that he convinced he should rule over Israel, that he should be the next judge. And so they went and they killed Gideon's other sons, except for one who went hiding. And they went up to a mountain and declared Abimelech king. Well, needless to say, it didn't work out so well. Following Abimelech, we have two judges who are just mentioned in passing. This one judge ruled for X number of years. The other judge ruled for X number of years because at this point, it's not about the other nations. It's about Israel and how far she has turned from God. In fact, in Judges chapter 10, we see a whole list of the gods that Israel is now worshiping. They're worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of um, Midian and uh, the Amorites and the gods of the Egyptians and the Philistines. And, and there's this whole list of gods that Israel's now worshiping. And if you count them, there's seven different gods, seven different nations of gods that, that Israel's worshiping. And one commentator pointed out how seven is a number of completion. And most likely what the author is getting, trying to get across here is that Israel at this point has completely turned their back on God. They have completely forsaken him. They've completely turned away from God at this point, and, and God's had it. God's tired of constantly coming to their rescue. And so the next time that there's an oppressing nation, in Judges chapter 10, they cry out to God for help. In Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, says, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, from the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amicalites, and Monites also oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. You want to worship other gods? Well, then go worship other gods. Let them come to your rescue. Let them come to save you. And of course they don't. And so the, Israel, the, the leaders of Israel at the time, the leaders of the tribes, they come back and they say, if God's not going to help us, then we need somebody to. And one of the leaders piped up and said, you know, there's, there is a guy. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't bring up him. Don't bring him up. We, we kicked him out of Israel. We don't want his help. A man by the name of Jephthah. Jephthah was, as the text says, the son of a prostitute. His dad had a wife and had other kids, but he slept with a prostitute one time, has a son, and, and his other half-brothers bully him, ridicule him, and just kick him out of Israel. We don't want you here. 
and they kick him out and he's up in the hills. But they know how great of a warrior he is. They know that he's a military man. They know that if anybody can lead the Israelite army in battle, he's going to be the guy. So they swallow their pride. They go to Jephthah and they say, hey, will you, will you lead us against the Ammonites? He's like, I will, but then you're going to make me king. You're going to make me ruler in Israel. Then I will, will rule if, if I'm successful. And they're at the end of the rope. They have nowhere else to turn. And they say, okay, I guess we will make that happen. So Jephthah comes down and it's interesting because God says he's not going to deliver them. God says he's not going to help them anymore. But in Judges chapter 11, we see God not fully turning his back on Israel. And it says, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Now, I don't know what this was like. I don't know what experience Jephthah had if he knew the spirit of the Lord was upon him. But what we see is that God still loves his children. God still loves his people. And what we see from the life of Jephthah is that God uses all kinds of people to come to the rescue of his people. God uses all kinds of people to come to the rescue of his people. It's not that you have to be a Christian for God to use you. You don't have to be doing these things and checking these boxes and make a certain income or come from this kind of family or do this kind of job. We see God using all kinds of people to come to the rescue of his people. There's an old preacher story about an elderly woman living on her own and every morning she comes out to pray on her porch to God and and she is just ridiculed, she is made fun of, and just hateful things come from her neighbor. God's not real. He doesn't hear you. I don't know why you waste your time with this. Well, one day, she's on the porch and she prays for groceries. God, I really need some groceries. The pantry's getting low and could really use some help. The neighbor overhearing this thought, this is my chance to prove once and for all that there is no God. So the neighbor went to the grocery store. The neighbor went and bought groceries and put them on her porch. She came out and saw the groceries and was just praising God. Thank you so much for this provision. Thank you so much for these groceries. And the neighbor said, you fool. God didn't give you those groceries. I did. And she just ignored him and kept on praising God. Thank you for these groceries. And thank you for making the devil pay for him. <laughs> God uses all kinds of people to come to the rescue of his people. Some of the most kind-hearted people I know are people who don't believe in God. They'll still give you the shirt off their back. It's not like we have a monopoly on just being nice people just because we're Christians. In fact, I've met a whole lot of people who don't believe in God who are a whole lot nicer than some Christians I know. And that shouldn't be. But God uses all kinds of people to come to the rescue of his people. And that's what we see God doing through Jephthah. God didn't call Jephthah. He wasn't the person that, that he came to the way God came to Gideon hiding in a hole. And an angel of the Lord came to him and said, hey, you're going to deliver my people. That This was someone that, that the people of Israel chose. But God was still with him. God still used him. And God was with him as he came to the rescue of his people. Now Jephthah, not the most godly man we read of in scripture, he makes a vow. He makes a vow to God, if you help me win this battle, then I'll do X. Now we've done that, right? 
I, I love when it comes to, to March Madness tournaments and I see the memes that said, all y'all who, who prayed for your team to, to win the March Madness tournament, we'll see you in church on Sunday. Because we all will say, whoever wins the March Madness tournament, I'll, I'll go to church. God, if you help my team win or the Super Bowl, Super Bowl tonight, if God, if my team wins, I'll be in church next Sunday. And we try to negotiate and bargain with God. And, and that's what we see Jephthah doing here. In verse 30 of Judges 11, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of my doors in my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, there is a good chance here that Jephthah was thinking maybe a, an animal would come out of his house hearing someone come down the road. There is a decent chance that he even thought it could be a servant coming to, to carry his equipment from war, to, to get him cleaned up as he approached the house from war. But Judges eleven thirty four says, And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. And now it begs the question, what does Jephthah do? Surely God would not require him to, to sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. Surely he wouldn't ask us of that. In fact, so many scholars and commentators throughout time have tried to explain this away that, that he didn't really sacrifice his daughter. I had a professor in undergrad who had this cute little phrase about God will never ask us to do something greater than the sin that we're, the, the other sin that we're doing or, or something like that. It's called it like the, the law of the lesser sin. But when we look in Judges chapter 11, verse 39, it says, Jephthah did with her according to the vow that he had made. And he sacrificed his daughter. And we look at this and just flooded with questions of how could God allow this to happen? Why didn't God stop him? Why, why would God require him to fulfill this vow? God didn't ask him to make this vow in the first place. God didn't make him keep it. God has been surprisingly absent from this story other than this one verse of the Spirit of the Lord being upon Jephthah as he went into battle. You know, it was a tragedy that Jephthah made this vow, that he followed through with it. But the underlying sin here is that he had allowed culture to influence his understanding and relationship with God. Jephthah had allowed the culture around him to influence his understanding and his relationship with God. Because you looked at all the nations around, you looked at the nations around them that worship these false gods and these false idols, and this is how you appease the gods. You made human sacrifice. If you really wanted to appease the gods, you sacrificed your own flesh and blood, your own son, your own daughter. So influenced by the culture around him, influenced by other religions around him, he thought, well, this is, this is clearly what God wants me to do. I might have vowed the Lord heard me and my daughters who came out of my house, so clearly this is, this is of God. And he had allowed culture to influence his understanding and his relationship, his faith with God. I'm assuming 
that none of us have really thought about sacrificing our children. But every single day, if we are not cautious, we allow culture to influence our understanding and relationship with God. Jesus did not grow up in the 21st century in a first world country. He did not grow up in a place where we have the freedoms that we experience in America. He didn't grow up in a place where he could type or go live and with a click of a button share his thoughts and wisdom and, and words with, the, with an entire world. And if we're not careful, we can allow our culture to influence our understanding and relationship of God. I read an article this week that identified two of the biggest ways that our culture influences our relationship with God, and they, and they listed individualism and materialism. And I would probably add a couple others to that list, but they, they listed these two, materialism and, and, and individualism, and, and I think they're spot on. We live in a first world country where we have so many resources, so much stuff, and scripture does say that, that we should take care of our family, we should provide for our family. But there are believers, there are people around the world with a hundredth of our income who are able to provide for and take care of their family. Sometimes the tendency is to allow our material possessions to own us instead of us owning them. Sometimes we start worshiping our material possessions that we start we just have to get the newer car, the latest and greatest iPhone or iWatch, the greatest Xbox, the biggest TV that we can find. We've got to get the latest and greatest of fill-in-the-blank name brand clothing, makeup. And if we're not careful, we start worshiping things and we start letting the things be the object of our worship instead of just things. We have to be cautious because if Jesus said anything about material wealth, material possessions in this world, he spoke to those who are wealthy and said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He wasn't impressed with material possessions, with material wealth. And if we're not careful, we can let our culture influence our faith and our understanding of who Jesus is. <laughs> Individualism is so rampant in our world today. I'm my own person, all about me, myself, and I. And yet when we look in scripture, what we see is that one day I will stand before God and I will be accountable for my faith, for the things that I say, for the things that I do. And I can't stand before God and say, hey, my preacher told me this. Uh, my professor told me this. We can't get into heaven on someone else's faith. It's by the blood and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. But when we look everywhere else in scripture, it's about living in community with each other. It's about being together. It's about being united together as the church. This is why we emphasize life groups and, and making disciples who make disciples. Because we're not supposed to do this alone. You're supposed to do this in community with each other. One of the big ones that I've heard so much lately is that I can say whatever I want to say because I live in America and I have the freedom of speech. And no one's going to tell me that I can't post this, I can't share that. I'm going to say whatever it is I want to say. 
But that's not what God's word tells us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5, 4 said, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You're right. Your, your American identity gives you the right to say whatever you want to say. But because I live in community with my brothers and sisters in Christ, because God's word says, no, you, you don't have the right to say whatever it is you want to say. It has to be encouraging. It has to be true, spoken in love. Sometimes we allow our culture to influence our understanding and relationship with God. I don't know if it's just been the last year that we've had or the last 10 years since I've been more of an adult and on my own I've paid a little bit more attention to, to politics. But I'd say another way we allow our culture around us is that we allow politics to influence our understanding and relationship with Jesus. I, I don't know what Jesus saw, what Jesus experienced when he was here, but I can't help but think that the Roman government, knowing what we know about Jewish and Roman relations at the time, knowing how, how, <laughs> how terrible the Roman government was with their treatment of people, I have a hard time believing that Jesus didn't say anything about the Roman government. It was very popular for the Romans to crucify people on crosses and line the main roads with crosses to say, if you try to cross us, this is what will happen to you. And Jesus, as much as he traveled, surely came across a road lined with crosses. And yet he didn't say a thing. I have a hard time believing that, that if, Jesus, if Jesus said something, that it wouldn't be recorded. Jews hated the Romans. The Romans were, it was always a tension with the Jews. I mean, it, it was always a very tentious situation. And yet nowhere in scripture do we see Jesus addressing politics and government. I can't say for a fact what Jesus would say living in our world today about what Washington is doing and the politicians up there. I've seen so many well-intended Christians who post things on social media or just say things to me about how we should be influencing policy to, to help other people. But let me just ask you a question. How many of your neighbors have you helped? Or your coworkers? And we may not see Jesus addressing politics and policy of a, of a government, but we see him helping and serving people. And if we can't get off our butts to help our neighbor in a time of need or our coworker in a time of need uh, and to tell others about the grace and love of Jesus, then how in the world can we expect policy and other people far away to do the job that God has called us to do? It's not about the policy and laws. It's not about what our government should or shouldn't do. It's about what we as Christians, as individuals, have been called to do from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But somehow along the way, we have allowed culture 
to influence our understanding of Jesus. We've allowed culture to influence our faith. We've allowed culture to influence how we see ourselves before God. Women, let me ask you a question for just a moment. How many of you, when you check out in the grocery store, see a magazine with, with a, a computerized fixed version of a photo of another woman and you start comparing yourself and your worth to what you see on the cover of a magazine? Men, let me ask you a question. How many times have you seen what movies and what culture says is the definition of manhood and compared yourself and started pursuing what culture says this is what it means to be a man? Because what God's word says, women, is that you were created in the image of God, that you're beautiful, that you have value because God created you and breathed his life into you. He breathed his breath into you and gave you life. That's what gives you worth and value in this world. Men, God's word has told us what makes us a man. If you're married, it means loving your spouse the way Christ loved the church. If you're single, it means setting the example in faith, love, and purity. We have allowed culture to influence our understanding and our relationship with Jesus. And there are so many things that come from that. From, for Jephthah, it was sacrificing his daughter. But if we don't have the proper understanding of who Jesus is, according to this book and this book alone, how can we tell others about who he is? How can we tell others about the love and the grace of God if we don't understand the true, right, blameless Jesus Christ? Not as our culture has influenced us to believe and see him, but from what God's word says. We have got to be careful not to allow culture to influence this book and influence what God's word says about who Jesus is. Father, God, you have been so good to us. And God, just because we live in this culture, because we live in this place, it is so easy to be influenced by others around us. It is so easy to allow the culture around us to, to influence how we see you, how we think about you, our relationship with you. Our culture has such a strong pull of convincing us that you are something different than what your word says that you are. So God, in this moment, we just want to say I'm sorry. God, I pray that you challenge us all this week and in the days to come to, to look at our faith and look at our understanding of you and question it all. Question it all to see, is this something that culture says about you or is this what your word says about you? And God, may we keep only the things that your word says about who you are. God, we love you. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.